Hello everyone, welcome to the third episode of Immunology and Beyond. For today's episode, we're just going to jump straight into the interview where we actually get to sit down with Dr. Jeremy Hirota, who is a faculty at the McMaster Immunology Research Center. Dr. Hirota did his PhD at McMaster University with Dr. Mark Inman. And after concluding his postdoctoral training in UBC, he came back to McMaster University in November 2016, where he obtained his faculty position here. And he's currently working at the Firestone Institute for respiratory health and from his interview you will find that Dr. Hiroda is an innovator at heart where he's always looking how to modify the way he does research as well as the way to apply his research to different things whether that's developing companies or creating new jobs or having new experiences with trainees from different fields so without further ado we would like to introduce Dr. Jeremy Hiroda. Dr. Hirota, thank you for being here with us. Can you tell us a little bit more about your research background? I know that you do research in respiratory innate immunology, and can you tell us a little bit more about how you got there? Okay, well thank you, Anna, for, for that question. So uh, I did my undergraduate degree here uh, in biology and pharmacology, uh, and then I actually did my, my PhD here as well in medical sciences and physiology pharmacology uh, with Dr. Mark Inman, who, uh, who teaches the famous research methodologies course here. Uh, so he was my PhD supervisor. And then following that, I went to University of British Columbia for some postdoctoral work. In Mark's lab, I was doing a bunch of animal work and models of airways disease in animals. But I wanted to get a little bit more cell exposure work, so try to do different model systems. So when I went to UBC for postdoc work, it was it was cell work, in vitro work. I carried my skills from my PhD with me, and I did do some animal modeling, but it was mostly to try to learn more about cell work. And then when I went at UBC, I got exposed to innate immunity and how maybe the epithelial cells, the, the um, site of first contact for the air we breathe in, how it responds to pollution viruses, allergens, and other things. So I started getting into, you know, maybe there's something going on with innate immunity in the lung that could be leading to disease development or exacerbations or flare-ups of disease. Started doing a little bit more clinical exposures, so I actually worked with some clinicians that were exposing patients to pollution and sampling the patient's lungs. Um, and all of that then rounded out my training from animal to cell to clinical, and then I made a push back to come back to Southern Ontario. My family's from here. Family is very important for me. I think it's in academia, it's one of these things that's, that's not really discussed or sometimes gets you know, pushed to the side. Uh, but my parents uh, live just locally. My wife's um, parents live locally. And so we wanted to come back and just happy that McMaster took, took me back. And then I understand you also are affiliated with UBC, mm -hmm. so do you travel back and forth often? Yeah, um, I still have a, an affiliate position with UBC, uh, still collaborate with them. Um, a couple of publications under review right now with individuals, individuals from UBC. Um, I, I limit my travel actually because of family. I actually don't like to travel because it means I'm away from my two kids that are under three, which is a lot of work um, for my partner, and I want to be there. So I actually don't. I, I probably go there once a year. Um, but in this day and age with, with Skype and Zoom and other things, um, I, I'll probably do that every month, every other month. So just to um, limit the amount of travel, save money, and I guess, you know, reduce my carbon footprint as well. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe we want to get a little bit more into detail about the different aspects of research in your lab. Mm-hmm. I know that you do some 3D tissue engineering type of models. Could you expand on that? Yeah. Um, so you're, you're right. We are moving towards more complex models. I'll say that as an umbrella statement, more complex models. Um, and, and where that's coming from is, is just this you know, simple question where I said, okay, well, all the cells that we're growing in a dish on hard plastic in a static situation where there's no air going in, there's no fluid moving, um, is that representative of our human lungs? Um, and the, the little literature that was out there suggested that as soon as you introduce flow or as soon as you introduce stretch, or as soon as you introduce any of these 3D sort of environments, the cells behave differently. So at a very simple level, I was like, well, that's, that's interesting. How can we begin building that into our routine work, looking at innate immunity? So the core is still at innate immunity, and how, how do epithelial cells in the lung you know, respond to external exposures? But can we be doing that in a more complex system that may be 3D, it may be stretching, it may have um, fluid or airflow around it, to maybe can we better model what's happening in the, in the living human being? That's, that's sort of the goal, is can we get a, a system that more closely resembles what's going on in a living human lung? And then can you talk about some of the obstacles that come with that? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, it's one of these things that... Uh, if you're going into a place, and this is relevant for everybody who's in the research game, if you're going into a place where others haven't necessarily gone before or fewer have gone before, um, that there's a, a lack of foundations, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, you can't just buy something that's you know, readily available through any of the distributors. Sometimes you need to make these things. Sometimes the protocols don't exist, so there's a lot of, like, you know, troubleshooting and, and optimizing. Um, you know, these are consistent themes with a lot of research anyways, um, but, but definitely we've encountered situations where a piece that we need or a apparatus that we need just doesn't exist. So we're forced to try to make that. And, and that's where I've had to diversify a little bit of my group. Um, and instead of just um, trying to recruit and train biomedical researchers, I'm working with the Faculty of Engineering, and I have a a postdoc who's a PhD engineer. I've had co-op students that are engineers because really I need them to help build some of the things to solve the problems that I'm facing with these, these model systems. So we have a 3D resin printer and we can make whatever we want within reason. Um, any type of plastic that you would use in, in for cell culture, if we want to put an inlet or an outlet or try to make it flexible or, or, or so on, we can do that now with the help of the engineers. So they've really pushed my research forward and opened my eyes to the possibilities. Mm-hmm. How do you find that process, you know, going from a biology perspective to then engineering perspective? Is it a sl- do you find it a slower process to get those models that you need, or is it a lot faster? It's a good question, because de- we definitely think differently. Mm-hmm. I'm married to an engineer, too, so mm-hmm. I, I know they think differently. And we can be very, we as in the biomedical researchers, can be very hypothesis-driven. And, you know, want to see sort of some statistical rigor and experiment with positive and negative controls and, and, you know, design it with sufficient N so that we can see something. An engineer does not necessarily apply that same um, 
protocol to their, what they're doing. They just will try 10 different things and pick the one thing that works and then iterate from that and then pick that and then pick that and then pick that. Mm-hmm. And they slowly just iterate and wiggle towards something that works without having to go through this statistical significance or the control, the negative control. So it's really challenged me on, on sort of you know, expectations and timelines because I can predict when something's going to work in the lab because you can design an experiment and you know that at the end of the experiment, if the right controls are going to be there, you're going to get a result that you can interpret. But an engineer who is fiddling and playing and optimizing something could have it done in a day or it could take four months, six months, a year. And if I can add to that, I, I think there's something to be said about those two fields coming together. So the rigor that we may apply to our experiments in, in a biomedical sense, um, you know, maybe we're, we're doing it too slow, too rigorous, that we're, we're not able to quickly adapt and find a new path forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in contrast, maybe the engineers here are doing things too iteratively and not systematically, and maybe they're missing something unique that they haven't really, really tried to hammer out. And, and if each of us could learn a little bit about the, how the other approaches research, um, you know, I think that will make these expectations a little bit easier to manage. I guess, like, moving on to industry is a good segue. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted to know, you're quite involved just from hearing about an engineer and in biology within just your academia perspective, but you're also very much involved in industry. Mm-hmm. You founded two companies, mm-hmm. uh, Hero Farm and in Iphenotype, mm-hmm. and we just wanted to know a little bit more about those two companies and what your role was. How did you come about founding those companies? What was the idea that drove you to kind of take the step forward and move those two companies forward? Okay. Yeah, and, and in full disclaimer, these, um, these companies are, are not your... Uh, you know, multi-million dollar startups or, or so on, hopefully, maybe one of these days. So to begin, Hero Farm um, was obviously a play on my last name, but I, I, was, um, I was getting asked, and professors will occasionally get asked, and as you become more senior, I think you get asked more frequently, mm-hmm. to consult. And I was, was getting a bunch of phone calls when I was at University of British Columbia and I, I was thinking, well, how can I actually take the, the stuff in my brain and monetize it? I mean, we've all been through programs, and we're going to go through these programs, and sure, you get a degree at the end of it, um, but how do you extract money from your brain? Mm-hmm. And this was just, you know, I had talked to some colleagues, and a lot of them have done consulting. Some of them did it just through the university, um, but some of them had set up their own entities Um, uh, for various reasons you know there's now you can have different pools of money that you can use in a different way that the university might not be able to regulate so so that was really just um, it was an opportunity Mm -hmm. and the people that I had been working with at UBC and the mentors had been consulting frequently um, and you know it was just another way to extract value from your training I mean your, your university or your company could give you some money but why not try to make a little bit of money for yourself Mm -hmm. um so that was Hero Farm, and I still I still sort of continued to do that consulting. That was a company that was registered in British Columbia. It's not registered in Ontario since I've come here, so we can sort of say that that's sort of closed up shop for now, mm-hmm. um, and I haven't been doing any work in UBC for that. 
It, are you the sole like member of the company? Yeah, so that was a sole proprietorship. You got it. Um, as like actual the way it was set up for um, legal reasons or, or sort of um, corporation reasons, it was called a sole proprietorship. Um, and and there was the possibility that I could bring on other people, um, and then they would have been individual contractors. But that was I kept it pretty focused on just lung stuff, immunology stuff that I was safe enough that I could comment on that. So throughout your um, training, your, I guess your PhD, did you ever think about doing consulting and stuff like that as hmm. you were training? Um, so yes. Uh, I, I didn't do it through my PhD. I didn't consider it through my PhD. I was really into the science. I really liked what I was doing. I really liked the, the academic environment, the conferences and all these things. Um, it was through, um, through postdoctoral training where uh, I was getting exposed to, I, I was in Vancouver, I was, I was living downtown and, and interacting with some of the um, extracurricular events. So Life Sciences BC would have events. There would be various meetups, um, people interested in biotech. And I, I got exposed to management consulting or consulting as a possibility, as a, as a postdoc. And I started hearing about McKinsey, you know, and these other consulting companies. And I, I it did definitely then. That's when I got interested in it. And I realized, like, there's these huge companies that are essentially getting paid to, you know, tell people what to do based on, you know, research in the brain. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a nice idea. Um, and, and I have a, a friend of mine who um, interviewed for all... Uh, of these major consulting companies ended up going to McKinsey um, and has subsequently um, you know, left McKinsey after putting in his time uh, and is now a director of strategy for Novartis. You know, so that's like an incredible, he did his PhD and then he, he went into this space. And you know, it, it's definitely something that is appealing to me. Um, and I wouldn't say that you know, I've even closed the door on that as an option in the future. And what about in phenotype, right? Because okay. is that one also a consulting company? No. So, so in, in phenotype is, um, you know, it's a play on um, uh, phenotyping individuals, mm -hmm. um, and then the infinity. So, like you know, the possibilities could be endless, like depending on what we want to phenotype. And um, you know, where we are living in this this omics era, whether it's metabolomics, genomics, transcriptomics, proteomics. Um, and but what do we do with all of that data? Um, and, you know, down at the Firestone Institute where we are for respiratory health, uh, they're still taking people's spit or sputum mm -hmm. and looking at an individual's sputum <laughs> And based on the number of cells or the types of cells, they're treating that individual according to their cells. So they, yeah. all of us are different, and so all of our cells might look different, so then they will tailor the, th the treatment accordingly. It's sort of personalized precision medicine, mm -hmm. but with SPIP. And so I was thinking, you know, like, is there any way that we could really take this a little bit further, you know, a way that we could maybe be doing this in the comfort of somebody's own home, mm -hmm. Um, and, and there are obviously examples of companies that are doing this, um, maybe making wilder claims for bigger diseases, but could we use the local expertise that we have in the lung space and the local expertise we have with Waterloo that I'm working with in the informatics space and, and the data, data science space 
And could we maybe start to get fingerprints of patients, okay. um, molecular fingerprints mm -hmm. of the patients, um, and use that to, to better guide their therapy? Um, and so it, it's, it's aspirational, the company. Um, there is an uh, engineer on campus, Dr. Leila Soleimani, uh, from engineering physics. Um, she does uh, diagnostic chips, uh, miniaturized diagnostic chips, um, which can work with blood, spit, urine, other things. Um, and the idea is, could we take a molecular signature that we can find in our unique patient populations, maybe at an individual level, and, and put that onto a chip where someone at the comfort of their own home every morning, they could you know, take a sample and say, oh, geez, I'm at risk today. My levels are going up. I should, I should take extra medication with me or something. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the aspirational hope of the company. Um, uh, Shatil Ask, Dr. Shatil Ask is involved. Um, Dr. Andrew Doxy from University of Waterloo is involved. Myself um, and Leila Soleimani is involved. Um, and, and those are the faculty members. And we're just hoping to sort of work on the IP, the intellectual property side of things. Um, and then once that's shored up and a business case is shored up, then begin sort of seeing, trying to expand, um, you know, get a footprint, um, maybe get investment and going from there. Okay, so the company is still very much in its beginning stages yes. at the moment. And where do you see it moving forward? How quickly the steps that you're talking about are, would happen? Um, what we're trying to do now is use publicly available data, mm -hmm. or data that has already been published, so it's, it's out there in the world, anybody can take it, but can we uniquely mine that data and find a signature that will become our signature uh, and then apply that to a diagnostic device, which would also be uniquely ours. So what that does is it removes us from the issues of it being you know, your data, because it's out in the public already. Mm -hmm. um, it removes us from the issues of um, exploitation of any patients. Um, and um, you know, it, it then becomes an issue of, well, do we have unique insight into those samples which I think we do, and then can we extract that for some value. So it's been an iteration. It's been pivoting in the terms of those startups. Um, it's been a journey because we thought we could do this a lot quicker two years ago. Um, but uh, through these challenges with working with the hospitals and ownership of tissues, we've realized we can't go down that path. We need to move. And so it's been a bit of a challenge. I would like to close in saying that, that to you know allay any assumptions that I'm I'm running these things, it's been incredibly challenging to try to drive it um, by myself. Um, I have a lab with a dozen people, you know, multiple grants that are going in or ongoing. Um, I, I have a, appointments at different universities. I have a young family, and it, it just I realized that. If this was going to be done well, I needed help. Mm -hmm. And so I've hired uh, an individual who's coming in. Uh, she's a PhD trained lung scientist. Uh, she's done postdoctoral work in omics space, in the lung space. Uh, she's also done training in um, commercialization and entrepreneurship. So her name is Dr. Melitza Bakmirovich. Um, she's a Michael DeGroot Innovation, Commercialization, and Entrepreneurship Fellow. And I've sort of said, I need you to help push this forward. I'm supportive, but Melitza has really been a huge driver for this as of November.
So listening to your story of going through, you know, developing here a farm and a phenotype, it seems like it's very much entrepreneur. You mm -hmm. kind of take on these projects and, you know, figure out as you go what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So how is, how is that transition on going into industry, right? Where a lot of the stuff that you're doing, you know, it's not so much like research-based, but it comes into finances, mm -hmm. uh, possibly like recruiting and working with people, maybe not within academia, but going outside of academia. Mm -hmm. Let me take it all the way back to, you know, where I grew up in Brantford, just down the way. And and so I am, uh, my name is Jeremy Hirota, and I am, I am half Japanese. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a town where there was maybe one or two other Asian kids at the time when I grew up. And I knew my dad was Japanese, but then everyone else was, was Caucasian. And, and I was like, I never really fit in. I mean, I think every child feels like they never really fit in. But I, I didn't think I did. And so I felt like I was always straddling anyway. And then I, I played a lot of sports, but then I was also like an academic and I would do math contests and stuff. So it was like, that didn't really work either. And I was always, you know, the the geek with the, the, the sports guys and then the, you know, the sports guys with the math geniuses. So it's like, it never really fit. And, and so I never actually pigeonholed myself. So even with academia, like I'd already, my, my friends that went in industry, you know, I was always like, what's going on there, you yes. know? And so I, I've just always been straddling that. It doesn't get to your question about how, how do I do it because I've always been there. Um, but what I can say to like an audience or a listening audience is do it as soon as you can. You know, get out of that box, get out and just, listen you might you know be a wallflower for a bit when you go to one of these sessions on commercialization of research or biotech startups or you go to a toronto event that's put on by life sciences ontario like sure you might not know how you fit in but just you know through osmosis you just sit there and you sort of slowly take it in and the language becomes more common familiar to you the motivations uh, the expectations of those individuals, you know, becomes less about, okay, is that a nature paper, but more about, you know, is that going to be the data that we need to get the next round of investment? So I would say exposure, um, slow exposure over time, never, never too late to start, um, and, and slowly that transition will happen and you'll feel comfortable straddling both worlds. Perfect. No, thank you for that advice. I'm sure a lot of people will find that very helpful. Okay. So you're kind of taking a, a role now within developing, you know, that transition from academia to industry within the university. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, congratulations in becoming a chair of associate members in the College of Health Innovation of McMaster. Mm -hmm. And I guess we, we wanted to know a little bit more about what that group is about and mm -hmm. what is the main goal that, that your group hopes to accomplish. Okay. Um, so, so this is an initiative that's been driven by Dr. John Kelton through a donation from um, Mr. Michael DeGroote to um, foster and support commercialization, uh, innovation, and entrepreneurship here at McMaster. Uh, so I was brought in to this because I had expressed interest exactly as I said. Like, I'm actually not that interested in getting a nature cell science paper. I'm not chasing those papers. There's a lot of things, luck, timing, politics that go into that, and I'm not really interested in, in that. But what I'm interested in doing is, is taking the, the research that we can do and, and actually helping somebody. And if that's helping somebody um, make money, 
helping somebody who you know needs a, a new widget so they can treat their disease better, um, or both at the same time, which is actually possible. Mm -hmm. um, and then I can get a paper along the way and train some students along the way, um, and maybe train those students in areas that are not just academia because they'll have to work with companies and they'll have to work with legal and have to. You know, then I, I feel like I'm accomplishing everything I'm supposed to be doing as a professor. I'm still teaching. I'm still, you know, um, taking on students. I'm still training, um, making papers, and so on. So, you know, the, the college has a bunch of these people that feel that way. Mm -hmm. That they either have already had their own companies um, or expressed interest in having their own companies and or um, uh, publishing papers, but also finding a way for their research to make it to market. Mm -hmm. um, and really what the associate members are, which is the, 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 the rung that I'm managing, is, is the more junior faculty that are, that are interested in this. So maybe the individuals that they, they want to do this, but they haven't yet done it. Um, and so I'm essentially a bit of a ringleader, get us all together. We get together and chat about common themes, common concerns. How can we support each other? How can we push each other forward? Are there any common networks that we have or, or people within our networks that can help us? So people from outside, you know, whether they're lawyers, whether they're accountants, whether they're venture capitalists or, or so on, mm -hmm. uh, other investors. Um, do we have that network where we can then create sort of a safe space where we can begin taking these risks? Because having a startup and creating something is a risk and it's uncomfortable for us because we haven't done it before but can we make that easier to do mm -hmm. and then in doing that can we you know add some socio-economic value to this system rather than just another paper just another talk I what I think is you can get a paper and a talk but also a patent and also a company and also hire four of your graduates because they want to take over that company because they did the research that gave you the talk. I mean, I think that's possible. Okay. And that's something that you're kind of noticing within, like, during time in academia that a lot of that um, emphasis on, like, commercialization or industry is something that's kind of growing within academia as a whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, be I was exposed to it at UBC. There was uh, a couple of my mentors at UBC um, were, had their own companies and every student um, was on the patents that came out of that lab that then fed to the company. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot more interest within the Vancouver community about startups and biotech because they do have a bit of a biotech space there. So I, I got exposed to it there and then what I am feeling now, like the aura is that yeah, there is a transition towards that. So it wasn't just UBC. I just happened to be there when it was happening, but it also seems to be happening here as well, in Toronto as well, and other universities as well. Um, I can only really speak to Canada yeah. in, in that context. Um, and I think it has something to do with the reality that um, the, the research dollars are not necessarily increasing. It's becoming increasingly competitive to get those research dollars. Um, those are you know, quite frankly, they're government handouts mm -hmm. to, to do research. Um, and I, I think there's a movement that, like, we need to be accountable for that, that money that the taxpayer is giving to us. And um, if we're not generating some form of return on investment, and I, I 
concede that it can just be pure academic research. It definitely can be, and it should be. Um, but can we maximize the return on investment and do the pure research, but also find other ways to extract value from it? Mm -hmm. And I think we need to do that. Otherwise, um, that money is going to dry up or it's going to become even more competitive for it. Um, and at the end of it, we won't have anything tangible to show for it. We won't have an industry to show for it. We won't have a company to show for it. There'll be papers and citations, which isn't going to help the next generation of people look for jobs, you know, raise their families, and, and, and so on. So I think there's, there's just a movement towards that. And whether this has been top-down from the government, the federal government, from the provincial government, um, you know, um, and then the institute needs to sort of follow in suit. Um, there's definitely been a push for that. Um, I can say with certainty that the current provincial government, um, you know, is putting an emphasis on, you know, commercialization and, and intellectual property generated from the research here at the university. And indeed, the university is is prioritizing. Uh, the, the actual thing that they're going to prioritize is disclosures, so invention disclosures. That is something that they feel that they can change and increase, and in turn the government will recognize them and award them mm -hmm. you know, points for, for, for meeting that goal. So there's definitely some structural things other than just a culture or a feeling. There's some structural things that are going to be pushing forward commercialization and disclosures in an academic setting. So it's, it's always the idea partly behind it is mostly like bridging that gap between, you know, like all the content and that intellectual property thing within academia, but spanning it beyond that and creating jobs. Totally. You know, we, we all have these brains and we're training these brains and we're coming up with these great ideas. Uh, and, and we're really, really strong for that in Canada. Uh, but it's how to extract what's in the brain and, and the knowledge that's generated and 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 taking that piece and turning that one piece of knowledge into, you know, 10 units of value. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, it doesn't need to be either or. It doesn't need to be only papers, only company. I, th I think, you know, you can definitely do both of them. Yeah. Oh, I definitely agree. Oh. Cool. So I guess we're going to be moving into some like, career questions. Okay. So looking back to young Jeremy Hirota. Uh -huh. <laughs> what were some of the things that you wish you knew as you started your career? So either, it, whether it be from like childhood or starting in university, what are some things that you wish you knew looking back? Okay, so I'll tell, I'll, I'll say something that is not necessarily professionally related, mm -hmm. um, but I think it's relevant. I think it's relevant to this. Uh, so Mark Inman, uh, my PhD supervisor, when he uh, was my PhD supervisor, he had a child. And I, I didn't see him for a bit because he was off helping out and so on. And then, but that was his third child that he had. And uh, he made a comment to me and he said, Jay, you're never going to know what you used to do with your free time before you had kids. And I, I, you know, I didn't have kids at the time, so I, I didn't even know what he meant. And, and now I have, I have two kids under three. Well, one's just over three now. And uh, the amount of spare time and the amount of freedom that I have, I mean, I love, I, we had them because we wanted them. Uh, 
but the, the amount of spare time and the ability to go out and explore and, and, and try new things and get, get and learn new things and um, it's, I just don't have it anymore. So and coming back to the company, it's like I, I, I can't drive it because I just I do want to prioritize in my family and that's that's why I'm here at McMaster. So you know if I knew or if I had listened better that my time was going to diminish, and my ability to explore, my ability to try new things, my ability to seek new experiences, new training, was was going to just, you know, get pinched and slow down. I probably would have been even more hungry, and I probably would have done even more things and tried to learn as much as I could because it gets seriously throttled. It gets it gets slowed down. So, for the individuals that are out there, that that are early in their training. You know, it might be daunting thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do and I, I don't know. It's like, that is actually like, there's some beauty in that. And go out and explore everything because there's going to come a point where you can't. And so, and you're going to, things are going to start being lopped off. And so I would tell younger self to go out and explore even more because I never did any commercialization stuff during my master's or my, my PhD. I didn't go to meetups. I just hung out in the lab and thought I did okay research. Um, I, I I would try to expand my horizons more. I mean, even go 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 to art installations. Go to go to different you know disciplines. Go talk to engineers. You know, do different things. Uh, and I think the more different things you get exposed to, it'll either tell you other things that you're interested in or it'll actually consolidate your interest in what you're actually doing. Oh, geez, I really didn't like that. So now I know I'm supposed to be here. It kind of ties into kind of um, what piece of advice would you give people who are looking to kind of follow a similar trajectory or mm -hmm. who are in the life of research or life of academia or want to branch out. So also in line with that, like, can you expand further? Like for our listeners, what would you say that they should do? Um, well, you know, I I try to not say no. Like I try to I try to help. Um, I do try to um, you know say if if I've gone and asked somebody for something, I said, can, is it, can I help you with anything? You know, rather than just take, I'm trying to give as well. Um, and I know I did that through my my PhD. Um, my graduate studies and through postdoc, like if anybody needed anything with, a, with an experiment, they needed help and they needed an antibody or they needed optimization, if there's anything I could help them with, like I tried to do that. And um, that alternative, like I, what happened is I got trained in more different, like different things. I was like, oh, I learned something there. I learned what they were doing. I got exposed to different things. I had better colleagues. So when I was having trouble, I could reach out to them I mean, that wasn't the, the intention of doing it, but it just was a byproduct of it. And then along the way, there was an occasional collaboration, an extra paper here and there. And for someone who, at that time, I was hyper-focused on academia, I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I knew the currency was publications. Um, so so it's sort of like that, that was what I needed to do. So I was happy because I was helping people, I was learning, and then I was getting the byproducts of additional papers. That was what I 
did, um, if that suits your personality, um, I think, you know, helping others around um, is, is only going to just, you know, help you out. Because they might end up, they, they might end up working for a company and they're going to say, you know, geez, working with that Anna, you know, like she always helped out. She's the person that we should hire. And, and so you don't, it's, it's very difficult to predict how your positive influence on that person is going to reverberate five years, ten years down the line. Um, so to try to predict how that, that, you know, small little thing is going to change your life is hard, but it's, it's a risk that I would take because it's such a small little thing, and the upside is huge. Great. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us, um, talk to our listeners, imparting all of your, your knowledge and all of your expertise and your advice. like to thank Dr. Hirota for taking the time out to speak with us about his experiences and most importantly we'd also like to thank you guys for listening to us so if you do have any other suggestions on guests or anything that you would like us to know just send us a message on our Twitter Immuno and Beyond and this was your weekly dose of immunology